Yo, Mike. What it is, yo. I'm just chilling like a villain. I'm Kyler McDaniel from Fangraphs.com, and on the other line, the most dangerous progressive baseball mind I know, Eric Longhagen. I'm a dangerous... Yes. <laughs> it's like, it's like uh, that movie Dangerous me. Minds. Well, who's in that movie? I'm, what are you talking about? It's, uh... Is it Michelle Pfeiffer and Coolio? Michelle Pfeiffer is criminally underrated, in my opinion. And one of the better Batman villains that's ever been on the screen. Someone should be I know Suspicious Minds. Elvis You've song. opened your investigation <laughs> into her career. Um, well, I'm glad we've already started on topic. Um, so we've actually already... We're recording this intro after we've recorded all three topics. Uh, we will be getting to Craig Edwards talking about the new asset values we've uh, unrolled with great help from him and Sean Dolanar. Um, on minor leaguers, we then have Meg Rowley talking about uh, two depressing topics, which is the limitations of minor league asset values and treating people as objects, um, and then also what's going on with the Mariners. And then for the third topic, Eric and I went through three topics, talking about the uh, Baltimore and Houston uh, executive shuttle and the various changes in those front offices. Uh, Wes Johnson, the former Arkansas pitching coach, going to the Minnesota Twins, and MLB's PDP... Um, how would I say this? We'll say MLB's PDP Expansion? OPP. Um, <laughs> tra- yeah, tra- right. Trying to get into other other showcase companies' other properties. Games problems. Yeah. P- PGP. Yeah. There's a joke in there somewhere. I didn't find it. Um, if you need to find us, he, Eric, is at, at Longenhagen. I'm at Kylie McD. You can email us at prospects at fangraphs.com, and you can go to fangraphs.com slash prospects to see all of our articles. And trust me, there are a lot of them, especially last week. Ben Lindbergh called it Prospects Week, and I said, what are you talking about? And he's like, you guys wrote a lot of stuff. I'm like, you know what? I guess it is a Prospects Week because we wrote a lot of things. Um, We had Craig Edwards' asset valuations uh, on the site. We wrote a new Fangraphs scouting primer to prepare you for the uh, season of prospect lists, which is – Upon us, the Cardinals list is already up, and there's just like a list of 2018 uh, MLB players who graduated off the list uh, on the site as well. And I wrote about potential prospect trade packages for JT Realmuto. We both had chats this week, um, and I think Craig's was either three, for those four articles. Um, so yeah. what is that, like nine pieces in like five days or something? I can't count very well, but that sounds like there, a lot. It was like a 36-hour period where it was like six or seven different things, which is good. Which is good. That's so why we have a prospects landing page because I I have trouble navigating the Fangraphs main page when I'm trying to find nine different articles that we put up in one week. Like you know that that's a lot of things. All right, so we will jump into topic one. And for our first segment, we're branching out in a new direction. We're bringing on lots of guests. We're heavy on Fangraphs writers. We've already got me and Eric, and now we're being joined by the one and only Craig Edwards of Fangraphs.com. Craig, how you doing? I'm happy to be here. There you go. We've got a great connection now. It was a little iffy the first time. Craig's coming through loud and clear. Craig, we're bringing you on to talk about the asset value uh, framework, or I guess the asset values themselves also, uh, that uh, I guess Eric and I have been kicking around the concept for a while. We were hoping to find someone other than us, because we're bogged down with work, to do the math. We found a willing participant, and I would even say an enthusiastic participant in you. Uh, What about this project uh, sort of appealed to you? Yeah, it's, it's something that a lot of people have done. Uh, something, you know, similar uh, in the past. And I've always been interested in reading what people have done uh, previously. And I was interested in sort of, uh, you know, giving it a, a shot myself. And I, I think that, you know, we we talk a lot about, you know, objectivity versus subjectivity. And I think that one of the 
the things that we try to do generally um, is, at Fangraphs is to, to keep things objective. And, you know, we're always talking about, you know, trades being, you know, good or bad. And, you know, a lot of the times, unless it's like, a, you know, Shelby Miller type deal, um, it's hard to have any sort of expertise for people who um, aren't following it as well as, as you know, you guys are. Uh, and so I think it's helpful for, for the people who aren't quite maybe in tune to sort of have a, a better general idea uh, of exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about trying to, to value prospects. And that was something that I was interested in, in finding out and sort of uh, led me uh, down the path to trying to, to, to figure it out. Well, I would apologize that this podcast isn't being hosted by uh, the dearly departed Carson Sestouli because he would probably have a philosopher's quote about the power of empiricism. But instead, I'll just say thank you for doing this work so we don't have to. (laughs) Because it's one of those things where I feel like once you get into it, you really want to keep doing it. It's just hard to get past that, like first hurdle of getting like the whole database and putting it all together and like, you know, finding all the little problems with, you know, well, this guy's on the list three times, three years in a row at different places. How do you handle that? Much of the uh, difference from study to study, because obviously it'll be different over time as the players get better or worse, but much of the difference is in sort of the methodology. And uh, we, you came up with a methodology that I think works. Obviously you ran it by us to see if we agreed with you. And I don't think we really made many adjustments. And I think it was uh, novel in a way because, um, in some ways, I think it would be like, you know, you could argue be most empirical to just take exactly what the controlled years are of a player. Um, but then once I started thinking about it, I'm like, well, Jason Hayward was brought up on opening day when I think the vast majority of teams would have brought him up 11 days later to get an extra year of control. So what would actually be the right, um, you know, sort of amount of war over the amount of years for him? Because most teams would handle it one way, the one team that matters handled it a different way. Should it be between the two? I argued that may be it, because we're trying to measure how good was Jason Hayward versus some other player similar to Jason Hayward. And you could argue... The exact same franchise was faced with a similar situation last year and made the exact opposite decision, so... Yeah, and it was also happened. They happened to both the playoff years, where uh, I guess the this past year with Acuna, they made it by a little safer margin. Whereas in Hayward's year, I believe they made it by a game or two. And Hayward's first week when he came up uh, was one of those weeks where he put up like point eight wars. You could argue that that actually made the playoffs and paid off. But it's just one of those bigger questions where I think we were confronted with: Do we want to exactly match exactly what Baseball America's rankings were, exactly what this player did in his first six years? And then I think we realized, well, we don't rank players exactly like they did. They also now don't rank players exactly like they used to. I think having um, a, a more fluid process that sort of rounds off a few corners here and there for the sake of simplicity may actually be more indicative because we don't need to perfectly fit that data since that data is just like a starting point, not necessarily an ending point. Um, now I just feel like I'm rambling and not asking questions. So Eric, you get to take over. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I guess we talked about a lot of this stuff last night, Craig, when we did Effectively Wild, and so I'll try not to uh, double up on a lot of that stuff, but I'm curious as to where you think there might be uh, some holes, where either in the work we're doing or in the process that you applied to uh, valuing these guys. Is there anything, like specific types of players that you wish that we were more detailed and granular about either ranking, or uh, do you think we should be bucketing players 
in a different way instead of putting uh, like a future value number on them? Should we have uh, different types of players? Do you think that there's enough difference between um, pitchers and hitters, let's say, um, at like lower levels or something like that, that we should have more demarcation at different groups? Or like, how do you think we can improve this to make maybe uh, the process you did easier or uh, more accurate or anything like that? You know, I, I think that one of the things that is sort of difficult about this, and if you want to compare, you know, doing the prospect rankings to sort of creating projections, um, you know, when, you know, you, you see zips and zips sees a stat line from the year before and the three years previous are all bad, you know, the, the projection system doesn't know if the last year was a fluke or whether the, you know, the pitcher or hitter, you know, did a swing change or got a new pitch or, you know, something like that. And I think that, you know, sort of the the value in, in doing things this way, uh, hopefully, um, you know, I think it's, it's it, it, it made me realize how important sort of tracking uh, players uh, is when, you know, you've got a guy who's a 40 who becomes a 50 or a 55, uh, the value created there, um, whether it's from the organization or just the player's hard work or, you know, whatever it is, the value created there is immense. And I think it's, it's, it should be extremely valuable to sort of capture those increases and either figure out if there was some sort of error where, you know, you guys just didn't have all the right information for them, or if there's something an organization did or something the player did, because if the player did something, then that's something you want to try to emulate for other players. If the organization is doing something, that's something that you'd want to emulate as well. And, you know, or maybe the, the, the team did a good job of identifying a player who uh, has, you know, really good makeup or something like that. I think that, um, you know, I, I hopefully, you know, the, the, the benefit um, of, you know, tracking the changes from, from year to year could potentially unearth uh, either some flaws in the system or maybe give, give things for you guys to look at uh, in the future when you're seeing maybe another similar player and maybe uh, maybe the next year, you know, that guy gets, uh, you know, a, a grade a little bit higher or something or a similar player gets a grade higher because uh, you've been able to look at other similar players who, who have made who have made these sort of leaps and they, they are hopefully easier to identify. It's interesting. That is part of what's been so beneficial, like seeing players over the last several years. Uh, like being in Arizona and seeing players from the second that they step on a, a pro field and then watching them develop and change physically, mechanically, uh, technically over the course of several years it is sort of a double-edged sword because you can kind of uh, drown in it a little bit. Uh, and there's so much of it happening all the time that it is easy to miss. But at the same time, it is beneficial to see players changing instantaneously um like we're working on the pirates list right now i've never been a will craig fan uh but he's different now and so it's forcing a reevaluation and this was like the thing that i had the hardest time wrapping my head around when we were tasking ourselves with this kylie mentioned it too is like 
tracking players over multiple years as they change uh, rankings wise is like one of the things that's just so difficult to do. Um, is there anybody as you done work on uh, biases in the prospect rankings as well now uh, are there any more specific groups of players uh, e- even not just group by position but even more than that uh, that you think are that you that like showed growth during the course of your study players that uh, huge individual up um, you know when I looked at the positional studies you know the, the third base seemed pretty underrated. Um, you know, if, if a guy is a good third base prospect, uh, you know, he probably, you know, has the bat to play at third, which maybe he has the bat to play at first, or if doesn't quite have the glove to play at third can play at first. But I, I don't think there was anything too earth shattering from the, the positional stuff I looked at. Um, you know, I think that, you know, one thing that we're maybe, all guilty of, uh, especially when you're focusing on a team by team basis is, you know, potentially overrating, um, you know, even the guys up to, you know, a 50 level, generally speaking, you know, half of those guys aren't really going to, to amount to, to too much. And I think that, um, you know, on the one hand, you know, those guys that are in the top 50, um, they're, they're, you know, maybe the guys who are ranked, you know, you know, 15 to, to 50, if they're being underrated a little bit in terms of perception and the guys 50 to a hundred are maybe being overrated slightly, but then, you know, you have further tiers down and maybe the guys who are 45 and 40, um, you know, are, who are being maybe even more, uh, uh, overrated. And it's not like, you know, the, the guys that are, you know, outside the, the top 100 ish can't, produce value and you know the teams that are able to get value out of those guys are going to be teams that you know are, are making leaps ahead with their farm and then at, at at the major league level but you know one thing that struck me is you know when i look down the team list and you look at the number of 40s on on every single team and you know it's not you, you hear when people talk about you know trade well everybody's got one of those guys everybody has like 10, 15, or 20 of these guys. Um, and you don't want to look at them as completely fungible because, you know, everybody has their own strengths and weaknesses. Um, but but trying to trying to put the success of a guy who's a 40 or a 45 on the rest of those guys um, is, is how I think we end up over uh, the successes because you want to find those diamonds in the rough so that means that when you see a guy, you are looking for the positive things that could make them go further, and you're maybe uh, ignoring sort of all of the things that would probably keep them down. Because, you know, I want all of those guys to succeed, and I'm sure when you're watching these guys, you want them to succeed as well. And so it's, it's easier to, to see the strengths uh, over the weaknesses. So, Craig, one of the things that... Um... I've talked to Eric about, so I'm curious if you have a, uh, I guess, more sort of mathematical or logical way to, to solve this. Uh, we'll talk about sometimes how there's different sorts of 40s, like there's a, a low upside sort of potential backup uh, or, you know, um, inventory starter, that kind of thing, 40. And then there's the 18-year-old just signed for $2 million, huge tools, could reasonably be off the list or a 50 next year, 40. And the way that we adjust for that is by saying high, low, medium, variance, so that the reader knows what sort of 40 we're talking about. 
But I tend to think that all things being equal, the 40 with the chance to be a 50 next year and have the accommodating trade value, even if not, you know, major league value, um, that player is actually worth more than the generic one in AAA, which, I mean, you could argue the other way, that the player in AAA could get a swing change or whatever and um, become much more than they're projected to be. Do you think there is a dollar value way to account for variance? Um, I know I've thought about sort of how you price options and things, uh, but I can't come up with something where the dollar value would be different with while it's still making sense. Do you have like a thought for how to adjust for that? I mean, I think some of that's based on who's buying and, you know, who's selling, um, you know, the, the, the team that, you know, doesn't have a whole lot of holes. Um, the guy who's the 40 who could turn into a 50 is going to be a lot more appealing than the guy who's in AAA, who's a 40, who, you know, is maybe, you know, potentially, uh, you know, a, a weak utility player because, um, you know, in terms of putting a value on it, I, I just, I, I, I think that you can say whether they're high or medium or, or low, you know, variance and, and so you can identify as you can go back and say, hey, um, this guy got a lot better because we did this. But I think overall, if you took 10 guys that are you know, high variance, 10 guys that are medium variance, they should all end up, you know, if you average them out in the same pl- place. But what's going to happen is one of the high variance guys is going to become a star and average out all of the other guys who didn't pan out where in the, you know, the medium variance, you're going to have, you know, three or four guys who turn out to be average. And in the end, both of those groups will find w- should end up having roughly the same amount of value. Um, I think that if, if the sort of the variance is high enough, then it's probably best to just put them a grade higher. Um, if they have sort of superstar potential, because uh, that that potential and that that possibility, even if it's fairly low, is still going to be worth something. Yeah, and that's I think that's a version of where I ended up landing is well, if they're forties, there's just different flavors of forty, and like you're saying, if if we're if we're sort of calibrating everything correctly, then it'll still uh, sort of average out to be the same number, just with a different distribution. Um, Whereas if it's, you know, like you're saying, if it's legitimately underrating a guy, then that's just a matter of us grading him incorrectly. But yeah, like I said, I was curious if there was a financial um, principle to apply to that. And it sounds like in this case, there probably isn't. But I guess it's good that we're thinking through it. Do you think, Craig, that we could apply this upward into the big leagues in such a way where uh, players' contracts are factored in? Because as you mentioned on Effectively Wild last night... This doesn't capture young talent in an organization as much as it is just capturing the farm system. So, like, next year for the Blue Jays, uh, Vlad Guerrero Jr. likely graduates. There's a chance that Bo Bichette graduates. Danny Jansen probably graduates. And they just tank all the way down uh, these farm system rankings as a result of that. They've also added Carson Sestouli to the organization, further devaluing it. So, uh, is there a way we can apply... Uh, this thinking to big league rosters so that we can start valuing organizations as a whole. Yeah, that definitely. I think that uh, you can 
do sort of the exact same technique except use you know zips or steamer or whatever uh look at that five years out and then take a look at the contracts and then determine what's present surplus value each of those players have um i think it has the potential to make people really really mad um you know like if you looked at say uh john carlos stanton for example you know he's got a massive contract but he's also a very good player and his projections are going to reflect that but he's not providing a ton of surplus value um so i i think that there's there's a chance that um you know it it i'm not going to say it does more harm than good but i think it's it's an interesting exercise and it's worthwhile um i think it has a greater chance of being misunderstood i guess i would say because you know if you want to know how good a team is um you can just look at their projections um the other thing that you could do is look at their projections for their controllable years and not worry about how much money they're getting paid and that's going to tell you generally speaking the you know how how much long-term sort of success uh the the team is is set up to have and you know this year and the next and whatever and then you can also look at surplus surplus value uh and see what kind of controllable trade assets a, a team has and you can then you can then say, hey, this team um, on their big league roster uh, can either A, afford to sort of, or should hopefully be able to afford to bring in, you know, free agents on on salaries that are going to net out or not necessarily bring in a ton of value over average because they already have so much surplus. Or you can look at teams and say, hey, if this team wanted to trade people, they should be able to because they've got a lot of really good contracts right now. And it's, it's sort of a measure of, you know, determining how many, how many good contracts you have, but it's not necessarily going to tell you exactly how good of a team you have. And I guess that's sort of the, the danger of, of it being uh, misunderstood or misapplied. And I think some of the challenges may come because I was, you know, obviously looking at the Zips five-year projections when I was doing it. There's certain guys, I mean, especially aside from even just the projecting catchers and having framing and all that sort of stuff. But there's certain guys, like I think Cody Bellinger was one of them, where it sounded like his trade value would have had his five-year Zips, you know, maybe one more per year lower than they actually were. And then how do you adjust for that guy? And then also another guy where, you know, maybe Acuna's were slower to adjust while he's just going, you know, bonkers for two months. Um, there would be enough sort of, especially at the high end of the trade values where we kind of know or have some sense of where these guys slot in real life, um, that we're trying to essentially, uh, mirror real life because trade value isn't like a thing. It's what teams are willing to pay for them. So if we like sort of somewhat empirically know what the answer is and then have to, you know, work with the inputs to find what the actual answer is, like, I think that may be the biggest hurdle because obviously the math isn't like technically complicated as we've as we've covered it's just you know sort of a lot of addition and multiplication and stuff yeah and pitchers are just difficult because you know if you've got a pitcher on a four or five year contract you've got some sort of average war that you're projecting but um you know do you worry about missing an entire season somewhere in there where you're not as worried about that with with a position player or you know you hope that the projections have that baked in there somewhere but, uh, you know, it's sort of difficult to do if some player doesn't have an injury history. 
but if they're throwing the ball really hard a lot, um, they probably will at some point. Yeah, unfortunately, we've had to add a Tommy John date column to the uh, to the new board because it seems like every system has at least two or three of them. And we don't have a way yet to notify the reader that the pitchers had two Tommy Johns, but I think we'll be coming up on that pretty soon, actually. <laughs> I just throw yeah. an asterisk on there or something. Yeah, I think we'll just do an asterisk or something. Yeah, uh, Eric, do you have anything guys else for Six guys? It's probably like a half dozen guys that have ever had two TJs. Yeah, and, and not many of them are prospects. That's mostly big yeah. leaguers and retired guys. But um, yeah, I'm, I'm sure there'll be one at some point. Yeah, I don't think I've got anything else for Craig. We talked for over an hour last night on Effectively Wild about more of this stuff. If people want to uh, dive in deeper and we'll learn about the this five stuff. articles we've written. <laughs> yeah, there are tons of articles. There will probably, probably be many more. I mean, I, I do think at some point we'll be able to fold, uh, you know, draft pick, expected draft pick return uh, into, you know, once the draft order is set, you can fold that into like a minor league assets page on uh, the prospect section of the website like there's a whole bunch of stuff we can do with this and i can say my tht article will be uh something close to that topic yeah so thanks so much craig for doing this really appreciate it and uh thanks for coming on yeah no problem and real quick before you go craig do you have any personal attacks to throw at meg rally after she threw so many at you in the upcoming segment you know she is uh very talented i'm very excited that she's taking on the managing editor role um, oh, aspiring politician Craig Edwards. There we go. <laughs> well, Craig, thanks for coming on. Yeah, no problem. All right, and on to our second segment. We, Eric and I, are joined by Fangraphs new. Is it managing editor Meg Rally? Did I get it correct? Yeah, that's right. Hey, sorry, it's I didn't weird. want to make you mad because I don't want to get fired. No, no. Yeah, I, I don't think that I have a uh, firing authority. <laughs> So you're doing fine. But yeah, Wait. managing editor Meg. Why was Carson threatening us constantly all the time? Then? Yeah, we're getting mixed messages here. I might have to appeal to HR on this one. Whoa. Carson tried to lay down the law? That doesn't sound right. You've been gaslit by Carson. <laughs> he, he did announce three wines deep into a dinner that he was the HR department, and he ended up pounding the table and someone else's <laughs> drink fell. So now I'm kind of wondering if that was real. Yeah. Do we have an HR department? <laughs> Another good question. Anyway, um, so Meg, Eric and I uh, have embarked, along with the help of Craig Edwards, uh, who was on our first segment, in creating asset values for minor league players. And for us, there are a lot of benefits to having this, both for uh, estimating trade value and comparing players and being able to go through, uh, I guess, old Baseball America lists, and then eventually when we get enough data, our own lists, and all sorts of you know different applications of this. We also realized in the middle of this process that there are some potentially icky feelings one could feel about what we've done. And so we've brought you here to shine a light on the icky feelings that we may be bringing up. <laughs> what, to what, tell you if you're good or bad people. <laughs> yeah, this is a version of The Good Place. Oh. And you're, what, I guess Maya Rudolph? Would that be who it is? You're some character on that show. Oh, yeah, yeah. Very flattering. My goodness. A comparison <laughs> I do not deserve. I mean, I don't think you're bad people, and and Craig's not a bad person. I think that it's very, um, I think it's useful to have this conversation sort of within the context of analytics more broadly, and the way that we, not just we at Fangraphs, but we as observers and public writers um, remark on and understand the industry, which is, I think that one thing that we do that's really valuable for for readers is to tell them 
help them understand how baseball is right now. And this is a way that teams and uh, scouts and front offices think about think about players. They think about them in value terms. They think about them in asset terms. Um, There is something inherently yucky about taking a human being with hopes and dreams and a family and putting a dollar value on them um, and their contribution to an organization. But I think that that is the way that the the sort of team side of the industry does things and thinks about things. So I think that we as public writers can try to replicate some of that and put it in front of people. And it's probably then incumbent upon us to also talk about that yucky feeling and the implications of that yucky feeling. So like one of the things that I came away, and this is like not a new idea, but one of the things I came away with from, uh, from your guys's writing and from Craig's writing was Holy crap. Are you doing swears? I, I don't remember if you do swears. I, I don't think holy crap is a swear. So I think you're no, okay. No, I know. <laughs> I, 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 I censored that one. I'm wondering if I need to censor future ones. Um, We've let a few fly, so I think you're in the clear. Okay. Uh, I will not abuse my, my power. Um, I, I think that the, one of the things that I came away from was, wow, we really need to, if, if one of our concerns as analysts is, a labor market that is reasonably fair and is going to get money to players uh, at appropriate times in their careers where it makes sense from a value standpoint, we probably need to get guys paid a lot earlier, right? That's one of the takeaways that you can have from that because the value that they are providing to their organizations is incredible compared to some of the older and more established players that are going to be on major league rosters. And so I think that doing that work isn't inherently anti-labor or yucky or evil as long as it's put in the proper context and we're comfortable having the conversation of saying like this is how the industry is and now part of our job is to ask is this how it should be Um, which I think is an interesting question and something that's totally within our rights to try to talk about at Fangraphs and at other places so no I don't think it's uh, like irredeemably yucky, but I do think it it burdens us with a responsibility to have complete conversations about what that means for you know young players, for labor more generally, for the industry more broadly. I guess that's about where I landed because the the impulse of like when I wrote the JT Rio Muto trade post, I'm basically doing a math problem. Like what teams have prospects that add up to the right number that I've deemed JT Rio Muto is um, to make a trade. And part of me thinks, oh, saying that such and such prospect is only worth $34 million, not $41 million. Like, right. that, that part makes me pause. But then on the flip side, saying that, say, Casey Mize, who signed for, I think it was $7.5 million as the number one pick, was sort of in the way that, like, a car loses 10 or 20% of its value as you drive off the lot, that he went from pay- getting paid $7.5 million and then he steps out onto the field and he's suddenly worth $41 million, that, for me, that feeling was, like, uh, neutralized by oh they're being so underpaid that by putting the value here it shows which and how many and by how much they are being so grossly underpaid that if instead of a draft we just had an uncapped bid on every amateur player for whatever price you think is reasonable which i think would be like the most equitable way to sort of handle this you could see some players that get 400k end up being worth 100k and so they you know the middle class kind of moves down some but undoubtedly that top of the class should be going much higher but those are the players already signing for four or five million. 
but that's also a fraction of what they're worth. And so it's just like all of these feelings kind of go back and forth. And I'm like, all right, there's some good and there's some bad. I don't want people on Twitter to be getting used to saying that Austin Riley's worth $41 million, but not 50 so he sucks or whatever. Like, that's not great, but they're right. already doing kind of sucky things anyway. And so being able to point, put a light on this as we're leading up to the CBA where they could be discussing the trading of draft picks or various other things that may make it a little more equitable, this whole process, or things in the international market where we're talking about, you know, third world country players uh, that are even, you know, lower income and have even more disadvantages get paid even less, where it's even higher stakes. I feel like it gets, um, I don't want to say neutralized to where those equally, like, cancel each other out, but it at least uh, balances, like, a good and a bad thing next to each other. Yeah, and I think that you, I mean, I think that for a long time, analytically inclined writing, whether it was about prospects or major leaguers or what have you, has been reticent to have that part of the conversation because we, you know, we look around at front offices, they're staffed by very smart people, and we're trying to understand the puzzle that they're putting together, right, and pick it apart and know how it works and then how, you know, see if we can fit it back together the way that, you know, makes sense and see where pieces don't line up, et cetera. I'm going to stop with the puzzle analogy in a second. But um, I think that we have, in the course of doing that as an industry, largely accepted um, some, uh, some rules around baseball and labor and how you know, players are paid and scouted and how we think about that stuff is sort of um, neutral givens, right? And I think that we're doing a better job across the board of asking questions and and realizing like these aren't new, neutral terms, right? Like if, if we understand um, the, you know, the baseball market to be some version of a free market, even though like the free market guys never get as worked up about there being a draft as I feel like they should if they really mean it but um you know if we think about if we think about it as a free market and then we look at a team like the rays and they say well we can't afford to spend more well well can't you though right and we haven't in the past been very good at at sort of asking those follow-up questions to better understand and push back on some of the assumed poverty of some teams or that we couldn't get money to players earlier or that we couldn't do this or that we couldn't do that. And I think we're doing a much better job, not a perfect job, but a much better job of saying, well, we should ask questions about the assumptions that we're making here and see if they're really going to hold because there's a lot of money coming into baseball and it isn't working its way down to the people on the field. And if we continue to think of them in asset terms, you know, I wonder if it does make it harder for us to then see them as people who probably should have a, you know, a bigger stake and a bigger share of revenue. But we also need to talk about the industry as it is. And so we, you know, we have to do both things. I think we have to talk about how teams view players themselves, you know, uh, other teams. But we also should make sure that we're asking really hard, critical questions of what they say they're capable of and what they say they can afford, because we haven't always done a good job of that. And I think the answer is probably going to be different than what they're telling us if we push on it hard enough. So, uh, you know, I think I think it's good to to ask those questions and it's going to bug some people to ask them because they don't think that they are appropriate and that, you know, teams should think about how to maximize efficiency. And that's fine. That's a way to view baseball. I don't think it's the way that any of us view baseball or we want to look at a more complicated uh, picture. And I think that we should 
we should ask those hard questions. Eric, where you come down on this topic? I imagine uh, your silence implies that you're Scrooge McDuck style diving into a pit of this These are complex issues with without a lot of real answers. Um, you know, there's just things that struck me more than I have, like, a whole lot of thoughts that make sense and can be put to good use, you know? <laughs> like, um, there are about a thousand players total on our board. Um, Craig's analysis of the players that are outside the top 100 sort of concluded that even the 40s and 45s are quote-unquote worth a million dollars, two million dollars. And like, think about how much some of those guys are making, uh, like, and it's like $1,100 a month. So, right. Yeah, almost all um, of them are making, yeah, under 2000 until they get to your six, in which case they're not prospects. And, you know, there is, there is to a degree, right, like, you and I and Meg, we have salaries, and that's not – it doesn't – I don't feel like that defines my worth in any way. Um, and I guess we sort of have defined uh, – or Craig has attempted to put a general value on people's talent, on their work skill, less than uh, their entire humanity, right? Um, and so that's meaningful. I think this can be used as a tool uh, for the players' union as if, mm-hmm. any, if anyone can do some math. Uh, that works for the union, and um, I think that we the the stark contrast between what this data shows uh, and what these players are making is just another example that underscores how uh, violent the labor negotiations are going to be the next time the CBA expires. Yeah. And then there's part of me too that you know. Uh, it's hard for baseball – part of the reason that it's important to have these conversations is because things like baseball, these huge uh, public institutions, they can allow us to have conversations about things like labor relations. And there's stuff about baseball that is subtly different that uh, kind of makes it not – like incong- it makes it incongruous. So like – most people can't unionize. Like you can't really, you know, the the what was it? The Deadspin post with that writing job in New Jersey or whatever. Uh, it there's just a, there's a competition. People want to work in baseball. People will uh, be willing to do what it takes to work in baseball, even if it means not getting paid. And playing baseball is really you're just working in baseball. Um, and so yeah, like there's that's part of why unionization is important and. Uh, it's upsetting to me that the players' union has been so willing to be, in my opinion, short-sighted and selfish, and they've continuously used the rights of amateur players and minor leaguers as bargaining chips for their own benefit over the years. And that's part of what's gotten us to this point. So uh, on one hand, yes, I think that baseball ownership is greedy and generally cheap, and they use and are hiring people in their front offices who can uh, implement principles that enable them to be cheap while still being competitive, especially while so many organizations are still behind uh, at doing this sort of thing. And then on the other hand, I, I do blame the players' union, not unions in general, just the MLB Players Association 
for you know I use this example all the time. All you have to do is look at what Yoan Moncada got, what the Red Sox were willing to pay for him, and then what Shohei Otani got uh, like a year and a half later. And you can see where what those two talents are like. You see them what they're doing in the big leagues right now, uh, and one of them got twenty times or was was one of them had twenty times the uh, financial allocation as the other one. Uh, just because the CBA changed, because the players' union said, "Sure, hard cap international amateur spending, sure, totally fine with it." Which is Give something us... the owners decided on because they didn't like seeing right. these huge numbers in the newspaper. Right. But please give us a, an empty seat next to, like, I want an empty seat next to me on my spring training bus ride. So, like, there's there are a lot of there are a lot of issues, and I totally agree. The first thing Meg said was that the entire compensation structure probably needs to change where these players are getting paid sooner. Right, and you understand why. I, I I agree with you that the way that the union has conducted itself is sort of incomprehensible to me. And I don't mean to, I don't think you were doing this. Like, I don't want to let ownership off the hook. Like, just because the union isn't doing great doesn't mean that they, that ownership isn't asking for and then receiving things that put them in a position to keep more revenue than they're giving to players. So, they have responsibility for their actions and we shouldn't like just look at efficiency and say, well, what, what could they possibly do? They could do something different. They're making an active choice to do this. We get why they do, but they're still making an active decision. So we should hold them accountable to that. But the union really needs to figure its stuff out. And I can't understand why it's taken so long because I don't know, my mom's a lawyer, her wife's a lawyer. We're lousy with lawyers and that they would prioritize, you know, a former player who can talk to, you know, the Kyle Seegers of the world is understandable, but isn't going to be what they need going into the next CBA negotiation. So I was very like pleased to see that they were staffing up in a way that made it seem like they understood the gravity of this next negotiation. But it's going to be incredibly ugly because they've already given so much ground away and trying to claw any of it back is going to be painful. So I feel like we have to be ready for a labor stoppage and it's going to be pretty bad. But Eric, I love hearing you say that it gives people an opportunity to think about these issues in sort of a low stakes way. Cause I think that's one of the places that baseball is so valuable. It's like, well, no one actually wants to sit around. Twitter would have you believe otherwise, but in general, people don't want to sit around and like talk about labor relations, but they do care about who's on their baseball team. So it helps us to find sort of a, um, lower stakes arena to talk about these really high stakes things and become better acquainted with them as like human beings rather than just sitting there and throwing our hands up when you know it actually comes time to i don't know unionize your steel mill there aren't really steel mills anymore but yeah, how, you know how do, what minor, I mean. how do minor league players seize, seize the means of production i mean they need a union they they need a union right yeah. and and we are having it's it's funny in a way to have this conversation about like does this guy deserve 11 million dollars or 7 million dollars when as you noted like there are people that are just not making a living wage at all right it's not a matter of right. are they going to be able to take care of their family for two generations it's can they buy food right and afford to live in a an apartment without six other people so there is on one level a very basic conversation that would be very easy from a dollar perspective to remedy if we really cared to or if teams really cared to. Um, and the fact that they don't, I think, suggests something about how interchangeable they think some of the talent at that level is. And so if 
you think about it in that way, I think this kind of work is actually really valuable to your point, Eric, because it's like, no, this is like, this player is providing a million dollars worth of value and you're paying him 20K a year. So we should probably do something to shrink that gap at least somewhat, right? I just add to that that the teams that do seem to have that attitude toward talent and they think that it's interchangeable, that applies to a lot of aspects of their organization, not just the minor leaguers. Yep. Uh, there, there are teams out there who just don't sign minor league free agents, who would gladly have a $10,000 senior sign uh, trickle up through high A, double A in the next year or two, uh, then go sign some $250,000 minor league free agent who might be decent org depth. And some of that uh, is more viable for those teams because they're the they're also the ones that are better at player development or identifying players who have a chance to uh, do something in the big leagues or even just get to double A and have some kind of prospect value in trade or whatever. Um, and so this is sort of part of uh, how why players are swimming upstream right now is because player development is at a point where you could you can make the argument that a lot of these guys are fixable uh and that less of what makes them good at baseball is in eight and instead is like um you like you can install it uh, right so that's that's just another thing that's sort of really just starting to become pervasive throughout baseball uh that is also a, an issue on that end do you think if i can uh ask you a question do you think though so, like, let's say you have that guy. You have that, like, you know, senior sign. He's not very good. He's not going to go anywhere. Do you – is there a risk that, like, that playing against that level of competition for the prospects you actually do care about can stunt development that that they might otherwise be able to, you know, achieve or maximize if they were playing against marginally better competition? Or do you think that the difference is probably small? <sighs> I think that there's, I think that there's probably value in, and I really am getting sick of using that word. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I do think that there's there's something to uh, experience and uh, the way that like a personhood, it's a personhood thing. Um, like there is something about when I was working with AAA Lehigh Valley for like the first my first several years in baseball. We had uh, a lot of aging big leaguers, guys who it, like the light was burning out and they were expensive and they weren't going to, you know, like Andy Tracy was probably making a quarter million a year to play, to be like a triple A DH slash first baseman. Um, and I don't know if you can, it's funny that like, this is sort of where we're at now, but like, I don't know if you can quantify and put a dollar amount on what that guy <laughs> Uh, taught some of you know Jay Happ and Jason Jaramillo and Lou Marson and all the the actual prospects on the team. Challenge accepted. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, so yeah, I mean, I guess there's some of that aspect that is just sort of going away as baseball gets younger across the board, right? Like if a scouting department is full of fresh-faced 22-year-olds, there's something that's not in that room anymore, and it's hard to define what that is. And just being old doesn't necessarily mean you have that, right. uh, but it but it means you might have gained that something. It's like a wisdom sort of thing, and I do think that those things are going away. As far as like what the talent is like in the Southern League, uh, because the Cardinals and uh, and Astros don't sign minor league free agents, uh, 
I don't, I don't know. That's a good question that I really can't answer. Yeah. I'm just curious if it, I mean, I guess it sort of depends on, as these things always do, it sort of depends on the player, like how much that, whatever that elevated level of competition, if you want to call it that matters, probably varies, you know, guy to guy. The, the two thoughts that this brings up for me. Um, one is that um, you see teams uh, more and more each year trying to stretch the limit that they can spend in the draft, where I think the first year only one team spent like the maximum pen, the maximum uh, tax, of, like I think it's what less than 5% over their draft pool um, without getting a draft pick penalty but paying a tax on it. I think it was just Toronto did it the first year, and now it feels like a majority of teams are doing it. It is amazing to me that no GM has thought, hey, what if we change the uniform player contract that we offer draftees, and instead of offering them 1100 a month, we offer them 10000 a month. Therefore, right. we can game the draft pool system by a real amount of money and have players that will take 50000 less from us, you know, saving pool money or getting a better player to want to float down to us if it's a high school player. Like, There's an actual advantage there, and it's not like that would give away the owner's antitrust exemption or anything. It would just be like, I think it's one of those things where one... When one owner would step out of line doing that, the league would get mad because eventually all the teams would have to do it, and then you'd just be giving away an advantage, and so nobody wants to move first. But I think for a bold, probably lefty-leaning owner, which I'm not sure if there is one, but if there is, <laughs> there would seem to be something to, to gain there because you would actually get more talent. I mean, it'd be at the margins, but you would presumably get more bang for your buck. Um, the other thought was, in a value-neutral state without trying to bring politics into it, it is interesting that the Players Association in the last negotiation, so it'll be interesting to see if they do that this time, appeared to uh, disregard the thoughts of the sort of lower access, lower value, uh, I guess technically non-union members that are in the minor leagues, in lieu of, in a high-stakes negotiation, getting just a tiny bit more on the margin for the already well-paid, higher access, higher value member of the union with the big leaguers, whether it's you know tweaking arbitration or the league minimum or getting them a seat on a spring training bus, like stuff that essentially doesn't matter to them. It's just like an emotional victory. Um, it'll be interesting to see how the union approaches that because while the minor, the non 40 man players, I guess, technically aren't members of the union, they do negotiate um, on the players' behalf, amateur players' behalf, for both the draft and, and uh, July 2. And they don't seem to really care about it, but that's where like there's the lowest hanging fruit to be grabbed because it's a small amount of money, but it makes a big difference to the people where it would actually matter, and a lot of people. Well, and it's not a dynamic that's unique to the MLBPA. I mean, we see this in in unions generally, um, where you do end up over time sort of privileging the uh, desires of older and more established members and younger members tend to do slightly less well, or in this case, significantly less well, because they're not even represented by the union. Um, so it's not something that's unique to, to baseball by any means. And I kind of get it. Like if you have your hundred million dollar deal, I bet you do care about having an extra seat on the spring training bus. Cause like, that sounds nice. You don't want to be squished. I mean, like, and what else do you have to worry about? You have your hundred million dollars, but it is, it does demonstrate sort of a short sightedness on the union's part to not anticipate a moment when, you know, the dynamic between teams and players was going to shift because, you know, it used to be that they wouldn't pay for production early because you didn't know if a player was going to sustain it. And it was sort of understood that you were going to get these guys on the back end when they turned 30 and were free agents. And, you know, teams are smarter than that now. It's like, I, you know, I don't think that anyone's looking back at some of the guys who signed super late this past offseason and saying, oh gosh, I can't believe this diamond in a rough. Like, 
Logan Morrison's bad at baseball now. Like, of course he signed late. He's kind of he kind of sucks. But that doesn't mean that you want the overall revenue split to stay where it is. And so the like inevitable answer to that is going to be shifting this money earlier. And I do feel bad because there's like a generation of 28 to 32 year old players who never really got paid and probably aren't going to now because teams have wisened up. And uh, I don't know, like those guys got kind of jobbed because the dynamic shifted at just the right time in their career to really, you know, disincentivize teams paying for bad production into their thirties. So that's a bummer. Wow. Uh, I, I guess you do have some things to come with Carson. <laughs> oh, being a bummer? Yeah. <laughs> They're just ending a statement on, well, that's a bummer. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Well, Meg, speaking of bummers, um, <laughs> we, we have been behind the scenes uh, speaking to each other about this uh, em- emerging icky feeling that we're having about another story um, mm-hmm. with the Mariners front office. Um, Eric, do you want to try to outline, I guess, what we know, because it, it sounds like it's another one of those, we can't prove what happened on either side, but I guess, what do we know? Right. Uh, so, I guess, the to give the entire background on the situation, uh, I want to say it was a little over a year ago, the Mariners hired a an exercise physiologist, like a sports science genius, Lorena Martin, uh, who had previously been working for the Lakers to be their director of high performance. It was a brand new position in uh, all across all of baseball. Uh, and like, you know, it, because it's baseball, the stuff that she was doing was not very publicly discussed. Uh, you could kind of piece together that it had to do with, you know, stuff like nutrition and maybe finding, um, physical traits that are meaningful that weren't being looked for as far as like talent acquisition is concerned. Um, and, we didn't really hear a whole lot from Dr. Martin throughout the course of the season. And then a few, what was, a, I guess a week ago now, uh, on social media, Dr. Martin alleged that several members of the Mariners front office, including general manager, Jerry DePoto and manager, Scott service and, um, player development director, Andy McKay. Uh, she accused them of, doing and saying racist things and just generally being toxic. And like the uh, organization has come out several times. Uh, they've made multiple statements saying that, uh, that these are just false, ac- false accusations. Uh, and like some of the details in there are that uh, Dr. Martin says that she went to HR at one point uh, to talk about this stuff, that there are other people in the organization who feel this way. Um, and so there's a lot of reporting on it. Um, I'm struggling to find all of the links. Corey Brock at the athletic, uh, wrote something, uh, which was the, which, which was the newspaper that really had a lot of specifics about, uh, yeah. So she talked to the Tacoma news tribune, There you go. um, and, uh, kind of went on the record with them on, because this came out on Monday, she went on the record with them Monday evening, and in that story, like detailed how I, I believe in a spring training meeting, she was trying to sort of outline her program. Um, there were parts of her contract, like work that was explicitly stated in her contract, according to her, that they were siphoning off and giving to McKay. And when she, you know, sort of protested this uh she she alleges that jerry depoto called her a cocky latina 
There were a number of other sort of incidents um, around McKay and service, I believe, you know, allegedly talking about Dominican players as lazy and stupid. And um, I know that since then, uh, Manny Acta, who's the bench coach for the Mariners and was brought in by service, has gone on the record with the Seattle Times claiming that this didn't happen, that he never saw any behavior like this. And he's known Scott Service for 30 years. And, you know, if Scott Service thought that Dominicans were stupid, that he'd never have been promoted and because he started as the Mariners third base coach. So it, the, the recriminations are very ugly on both sides. <laughs> yeah. So what the hell do we do? Like, I guess, first of all, and Kylie, you've already touched on this. There's not, we don't really have a way of knowing what happened. Yeah. The, uh, the things that Dr. Martin has mentioned that could be sort of impartial third person accounts, such as she said she went to HR and then the mayor said she didn't. And she said other people were there and they haven't turned up yet. So it doesn't mean that they can't be corroborated, but they haven't been yet. So it's we're now just at two sides kind of yelling at each other. And MLB has announced that they are going to conduct an investigation into what happened here. So there there will at some point, obviously, we don't know the um, the extent of the details that we'll receive uh, publicly as as a result of that uh, investigation. But they are going to investigate what's happened. So Right. And so now we're sort of at another flashpoint in public discourse here right now this is uh believing women and uh underprivileged people people of color about their experience in the united states especially in intense corporate environments uh and like there's no reason to disbelieve her right because there uh, other than some of the stuff that's been said about her tenure with the lakers where apparently people did not uh, we're not smitten with her there. Like, there's not a whole. Uh, there's nothing about her character that would seem to insinuate that she's lying or has any reason to lie or anything like that. The Mariners have really harped on the timing of her exposure of this uh, because she has been fired and was fired a little over a month ago, and then afterward came out and said all this stuff, which is a thing that they're fixated on. Um, so I don't know. This is really. This presents us the opportunity to have a broader discussion about uh, baseball and racism in which there is like there is a real problem of racism throughout baseball. Yeah, I I mean, I so like the two of you, I don't have any special insight into what happened versus not. I wasn't there when it did. And so, you know, I think we're going to this is the kind of story where we're going to get a lot more over time. And so you're nervous to sort of dwell on any particular detail. But I was struck when the accusations came out by my immediate reaction being like, well, yeah, I could believe something like that could happen in baseball. And that's not great. Right? Like, I don't have any I don't know DePoto or McKay or service personally. So I don't know what's in their hearts. And, you know, but like, it doesn't I don't have any trouble believing that Lorena Martin could be standing on a backfield in Arizona during spring training and hear some kind of gross shit. Like I have no trouble believing that whether they were, you know, it's uttered by Mariners personnel or not. So I think that the, the fact that it is quite easy to believe that something like this, even if it, the, the specific details in people's memory of it or perception of it may shift over time. The fact that it is believable to some degree in a more generalized baseball context is a, problem for baseball because this isn't you know this isn't language or behavior that we want to tolerate and I think that we as public analysts then have trouble talking about this stuff because we sort of mentally 
gauge it to an existing continuum of racist behavior in baseball and might be, you know, unsurprised or seem less agitated than we perhaps should. And for, you know, for normal people, for fans of the game, to they're going to look at this stuff and say, this is awful. Everyone should lose their job. So, you know, we need to we need to kind of help people understand not only where this fits on a continuum once we know more about what actually went on, but also like question the validity of that continuum because it's probably not great. Yeah, and I would also add that um, I don't think Eric or I were surprised from, you know, talking to scouts and kind of knowing scouts talking about other scouts and things like that, that there are, uh, I would say, probably not like outright like vocal racists, but like there's definitely some uh, persistent, especially uh, with older scouts, but not exclusively with older scouts, um, some prejudice in how they, you know, sort of group players uh, in a shorthand. Like I... There's, there's one instance where I won't mention like the, the team or the players, but there was a GM who had two young Latin players that both seemed like candidates for an extension. The better of the two players uh, was seen as, oh, this is the one you give an extension to. The lesser of the two players was seen as somebody that's uh, sort of brought the better player out at night and was keeping him from reaching his upside. And so they traded the lesser of the two players and then never gave an extension to the better one. And it was explained to me from multiple people that would know that this GM doesn't give extensions to Latin players anymore after that um, episode because uh, presumably they're, you know, uh, higher maintenance in some way. Uh, And the funny thing is, in that specific instance, I think that GM read the situation correctly, that the lesser player was causing a problem for the better player. The better player got better when the lesser player was traded. So I think he handled that correctly. It was just the extrapolation that that may now apply to, you know, all future examples, which is something we talked about before we started recording, that you could, you know, um, view any two players as, you know, high energy or lazy or whatever and be correct. The the problem is when you start extrapolating it and applying it with a broad brush to everybody when it may only be true about a small percentage of them or even just the two people you're looking at. I think that's sort of the the issue because you can you can obviously find any one example of any one thing you want to find and it's just the issue is trying to blanket that across everybody before you have a chance to find it. And we see that all the time with scouting where, you know, we, I think Eric and I often get excited when we, we can compare, compare two players across races because it's so prevalent. And we also do it sometimes where there's, you know, a black pitcher and you try to think of a comp and you come up with a black, another black pitcher. And oftentimes it's, you know, the best comp we can think of after sitting and think about it. And sometimes it's just a, a shorthand and that's obviously not racist, but it's just, if that comes easily to us when we're very aware of what we're doing, imagine what happens when somebody has, you know, slightly worse intentions. Well, and I think that it speaks to a broader issue of, of sort of representation of, um, you know, women or people of color. I I was talking about this with someone who asked me about the situation. And, you know, I worked in finance for a long time, and I was often the only woman in a room. I mean, I'm still often the only woman in a room, but I don't hear gross remarks from our colleagues. So that's cool. But I, I would hear wild stuff from men when I was the only woman in a room, because there wasn't the like, whatever that social, uh, anxiety is about being perceived as a jerk, I think it's overridden when you don't feel the need to censor yourself because you you so vastly outnumber, you know, a person who may not be in a position of authority to say something. And so, you know, I don't know, like, I don't know what, uh, what these guys said. I would hope or imagine that if you have a more diverse, um, you know, set of scouts, front office personnel, what what have you, that there is going to be some 
some of this stuff will weed itself out if for no other reason than you have a group of people empowered to stand up and say something when they're not the only one of whatever they are in the room. But but more more than that, it's like you look at this Mariners situation, there's no good outcome for the Mariners here. Like their best outcome is, well, we're not horrible, virulent racists, but we're really bad at managing personnel. Like that's not a good outcome for the Mariners as an organization. And we right? recently, they, had, I think, uh, forgot to mention that they have the recent history of, uh, what was it, a president and a chairman that had some um Yeah, Kevin Mather. Issue. Yeah. Yeah, had a workplace harassment case get... They basically settled a workplace harassment case, and he was promoted to CEO after that incident happened. Not because of that incident, but after it happened. Um, and so, yeah, I don't, I don't think the harassment was like, oh, you've hit it. Now here we can go. Put him over um, the top. Yeah, but you know, it's like either you brought in someone who was a bad fit for the organization, and you weren't able to manage your way toward that being if not a productive relationship, at least one that wasn't so toxic that it led to this set of things, or you, you know, have a real systemic issue in your organization around how you treat people of color and talk about people of color, neither of those are good outcomes, right? So I think that, um, you know, Ken Rosenthal wrote a good column for The Athletic kind of outlining that, and I thought he hit it, you know, he hit the nail on the head because, they they hired her and then went on a press bonanza, yeah. touting her, talking about the role, how she was this home run, incredible hire that was going to change the way that you know Mariners players eat and sleep and deal with injury, and that and they started you know beating the drum for her day one, and I thought it was such an interesting contrast to the way they handled Amanda Hopkins when they brought her on to be a scout, where they just. They hired Amanda, and then they let Amanda go do her job for two years. And they were like, no one's going to talk to her. We're not going to put her on panels. We're not going to, you know, let SI get their hands on her. Just go do your job and figure out your job, figure out if you're a good fit for the organization. And then after you have a couple drafts under your belt and we're confident that you're a good fit for us and that, you know, we're a good fit for you, then we'll bring you up for women in baseball, right? They waited to make sure that the fit actually worked before – they did anything, and I think that their desire for good PR on Dr. Martin got ahead of them, and then they ended up in this position. And I think the weirdest part for me, and for all we know, they maybe they offered to just buy out the rest of the contract, but if you believe then that this is the result of an employee who was disgruntled because she was terminated in the first year of a three-year contract, why not just pay out the rest of the deal and move on? Because if their narrative holds, they are both short-sighted and cheap, which is also not a good thing to be. <laughs> and it also speaks to them being so excited to trumpet a hire, and then a year later, let's say all the stuff she said isn't true, they just misjudge their hire, which is you know right. a different sort of negative thing. So like it's like like right. you're saying, at some point, everybody's going to look bad at the end of this in yeah. some way, and that's like the least bad way that that they can look. And I suspect there's probably a little more going on than just that. Right. I mean, I, I, I don't know these guys. And DePoto strikes me as the kind of operator who would be a little savvier than this, although people say dumb stuff all the time. So I don't mean to like say that, you know, smart people can't also say racist crap. But like the best case scenario for him is that he's a bad manager. I don't know. I, 
I just have a hard time believing you blow up your entire professional life if there's nothing there. Right? Because she's not going right. to work in baseball again. You could oh, argue that, she, she wouldn't definitely. work in as this sort of uh, role in any sport at this point, having this sort of be the first, you know, 50 Google results. Right. And so I have a hard time believing that you do that if there's nothing to it and if it is purely a result of being disgruntled that your role didn't end up being what you wanted or that you didn't gel or whatever. So, you know, that, I don't know. People do a lot of stuff that doesn't make a ton of rational sense, but it just seems like such an an extreme accusation to level given the professional consequence if there's nothing to it. This and, organization and given all of her qualifications and degrees and things like right. that. Like she seems pretty Yeah, I mean pretty she has like multiple PhDs. Yeah. Right, yeah. And if you if you watch her initial press conference and if you read her book, uh, it's clear that she is not coming from like a baseball background of any kind. Right. I think she more or less admitted during her initial press conference that this was kind of surprising to her and she doesn't really have a whole lot of uh, romantic affection for the sport of baseball. Um, like if you read the baseball section of her book, it literally tells you like the players use wooden bats and they wear cleats. Like it goes through every basic level. Like it doesn't assume any foreknowledge at all. Um, and like this organization has made and done other progressive things specifically with women. Megan, you mentioned Amanda, who's still the four corner scout here. Mm -hmm. And, uh, Leslie Manning is uh, the player development coordinator. I think it is. And she just Uh, got promoted. I don't know what her, I don't recall what her exact new title is, but she got promoted this, uh, off season earlier this off season. And they've done the women in baseball thing, which you've been a huge part of, and they're one of, I don't know any other teams that actively do that and make as big a deal about it as the Mariners do. So are these things coming from different parts of the organization, or does this seem like something that uh, the baseball ops folks also want to prioritize doing? Because there are people in that organization who do seem like, yes, we do want to nurture this uh, part of our organization and be more diverse and inclusive and uh, explore those areas and the ideas that these types of people have. Yeah, I, you know, this is the kind of thing that you have a hard time. It, I, I know people who work in that org who take that stuff really seriously and it is a genuine priority for them, right? It is a sincere commitment to trying to to try to diversify and have better representation of groups that have historically not been a part of baseball. And so that I think, you know, if I'm, if I'm turning off the analyst part of my brain and, and looking at it just as a person who like grew up rooting for this baseball team and has a bunch of Kyle Seager jerseys, like that's the part that is the most disheartening to me to think that some portion of this, even if it is sincerely felt by the people who are doing it in the moment, if some of this is just spin that they want to look a particular way and aren't like that's heartbreaking. And I, I am hesitant to say that because I think that for the people who are doing that work internally, and I know those people exist, I think it is a sincere priority, but organizationally, I, I don't know. I don't know where this fits with, you know, that conversation of them wanting to be viewed as an organization that, you know, hires in a in an interesting and innovative way that tries to connect with members of their fan base who've maybe historically been excluded. Like, I don't know how to fit those two things together, 
you know, and so I, it's, it has been for me personally, like a bummer. <laughs> it has been a bummer because there are really good people who work in that org and they're all going to get painted with this crap. What do we think the spectrum of potential outcomes for this situation are? Like the, the quote unquote worst scenario is for the Mariners is what that like a bunch of people end up getting fired I mean, I would think so. I would think that their worst case scenario is that MLB goes in, does their investigation and finds, you know, credible evidence that supports Dr. Martin's claim. And then they have publicly issued very strong denials and those denials don't fit with what they find. And then you have to start having conversations about firing people, right? And firing very senior people at a moment where, you know, a lot of the really good hires have been made, right? It's not like you have a lot of folks, you know, we've already seen some of the churn um, for front office people. So you'd be hitting the job market at kind of a weird time, depending on the timing of the investigation. And you also have an organization that is starting to contemplate a teardown. So it's not, it's not good, right? But I don't know how you avoid those you know, those firings, if they're, if they find credible evidence supporting these claims, like if Jerry DePoto and Scott Service are calling Dominican players stupid, I don't think that they can head a baseball organization. Uh, <laughs> you know, it seems so, like a bad place to start. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know how, if, if it comes out that they did this and then they're going to walk into spring training and it's like, Hey, Robbie, yeah, like hey, Julio Rodriguez, 17-year-old, right. who's like maybe the most talented player in our organization. Yeah. <laughs> How's it going? What's up, Gene? You know, yeah, like, I don't know I don't know how you do that. I don't know that the organization, absent that kind of a finding, though, I don't know what the organization is going to feel either compelled to do or feel pressure to do because they probably want to get on with the business of, like, trading James Paxton or Edwin Diaz or whatever. And so I think the range of outcomes is we all sit around and think that the Mariners are bad at managing personnel versus, and then it goes all the way to, it turns out that several members of the Mariners front office are virulently racist and are getting fired. And I feel like that's our range of outcomes. Well, Meg, thanks for coming on. Hopefully next time (laughs) you come on, you'll be scoring something on the joy scale rather than the bummer scale. Well, I got a new job, and I'm pretty psyched about that. So that hey, score cool. that on the joy scale for us. Yeah, it's pretty high. Uh, t- what is this? What are the ends of the scale? Uh, it goes from goes from joy to my head just exploded. Well, my head is still intact, but otherwise, I am quite excited. Moderately joyful, we'll call it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that's great to hear. Thanks for coming on. I'm <laughs> sorry the subject me. matters are not great, but I think they're important to discuss. Uh, agreed. And for our third topic, Eric, uh, we will be Sans' guest, but I believe we have multiple topics to run through. So we'll go through uh, uh, light, lightning round style. I don't know, thunder style? Some sort of style. Uh, first up, uh, we have the um, creation of a larger PDP. Is that player development Pipeline. project? Something like that? Pipeline. Um, by MLB, uh, which appears to be geared toward creating a much more affordable summer showcase alternative, presumably with the thought toward expanding it in future years. What are your thoughts on this development? Well, I think generally our thoughts are probably the same on uh, travel baseball, right? So this is this is baseball actively 
fighting against travel baseball, perfect game and the Under Armour baseball factory stuff, which is, uh, to borrow a phrase from the political arena, a literal pay to play uh, setup where. Not fake news, though. I thought you were going to go there. Right. Where uh, the players will, they have to come to Arizona or Florida and pay for a hotel, and they play on these travel ball teams, and it often costs the team several thousand dollars to enter into a tournament. Um, But this is where amateur baseball talent develops, and it's how amateur baseball talent gets seen. And because MLB doesn't have to pay for any of it, Individual clubs are super psyched about it because you can send your area scout here to Arizona in uh, January and February, and there are plenty of tournaments going on. You can see all these interesting high school players at like little to no cost. Uh, but obviously, now there's like a selection bias in the talent sample, and it uh, dis- it's discriminatory against economically disadvantaged amateur athletes who can't afford uh you know cleats and a bat and uh or several wooden bats because you need a wooden bat to come or play several, in these tournaments or several flights and hotels and fees right. to play on the team like, like let alone that stuff yeah so uh it's created an issue as far as um amateur baseball talent is concerned and it, it also has implications as far as um the health of young pitchers is concerned because these tournaments go on constantly. They're still happening. Like there was, there are top prospects for next year's draft who threw this week, who yep. have been throwing since uh, when was the first summer tournament? It was like right after the draft. Yeah, it was like the right? week after the draft until the now. Weekend after the draft. <laughs> yeah, there's, pro- there's projected first round high school arms. Uh, one of them pitched yesterday and also threw his first event in June. And uh, as far as I know, hasn't stopped pitching the entire time. And this and is so like projected all, multi-million dollar pitcher. Like he doesn't need to be doing yeah, this. Right, he shouldn't be doing. So, um, yeah, there are a lot of issues that travel ball presents. Uh, it is also, there's a problem of convenience, right? Like it, people like convenience and baseball teams and uh, player evaluation personnel are no exception. And travel ball presents them with it. So um, it's a huge issue. I'm glad that MLB is taking the first steps toward doing it. They've been doing it. They've been doing it with the uh, the Dream series for the last several years, where they specifically pay for the hotels and flights and uh, other like meals for uh, African American players to come to various locations across the country and work out for scouts. Like so, they've been starting to nurture that for the last few years, which is good. Um, and this is just another step in that direction i guess the thing that i'm curious about kylie is there are some of the summer showcase uh events that are run by mlb personnel already like area codes is basically a thing that's run by scouts east coast pro is a thing that's run by scouts so and those costs uh, are intentionally lower for that reason right i don't know if they're free but they're close to it how much of that uh now how much of that is in conflict with some of these events that we like uh that are occurring during the summer and uh, what are some other potential unintended consequences of this thing that MLB is trying to do? Yeah, that's that's uh, a common um, 
outcome with MLB um, trying to sort of fundamentally change certain things about the game. And this feels like it'll probably be another of them. And I think they're, I would guess that their target is baseball, sorry, uh, perfect game. Um, And that they would like for, like, for instance, it seems like a top three round prospect uh, often, if they shop around, can have their entire way paid to play for one of these travel ball teams. And also, obviously, the very well-off suburban kid, he also has no trouble going to these events. So the person that's getting left out is the middle to lower talent, middle to lower income, and then also, I would say, the multi-sport athlete who is, you know, maybe a football player that's thinking about playing some baseball, but if he wants to play over the summer, if he hasn't been already identified by scouts to be invited to one of these events, it's going to cost a couple thousand dollars to go to one of the, you know, sort of pay-to-play events to then get noticed. And so then that combined without having full scholarships, which is a whole other issue, right, yeah, makes I'm it just less likely say. for multi-sport athletes to sort of jump into that whole pool and see if they can get ahead. Normally it's when they've already been told or they, you know, played some games uh, on, a, on a high school team where they had a draftable guy and so scouts were just sort of running into them and they were told they have a lot of potential. So I think we're missing out on some players. Uh, I would say that it seems like if the event is sort of terminus start, so the beginning of Showcase Circuit is Perfect Game National, which runs about a week, I think it's five or six days, and then Tournament of Stars. And this PDP event is going to be run in Bradenton rather than Cary, North Carolina, where Tournament of Stars was, and is replacing that and expanding on it. And so on the calendar, it would seem to run right up against Perfect Game National, which also is in Florida around the same time. So you would think maybe more players will skip one, they have to pay for it, and go to the other, which is longer, will be more scouted, um, and will obviously be cheaper. And then the other sort of, I guess, big event would be Jupiter, which has happened in October, which is, uh, rather than a showcase, it's like a full tournament. Uh, you would think that the the sort of PDP um, apparatus could maybe create something that could combat that. Not that it's, you know, quite the same thing where you pay $600 to get seen taking, you know, 10 swings in BP and whatever. Like, you're paying to play in games, which is kind of what teams want you to do. But I think ideally you wouldn't have to pay and there would be, um, you know, other more disadvantaged players um, getting a chance to play in the big event. So I, I don't see exactly what the unintended consequence will be. But I think as they add more events and possibly try to strong arm certain situations where, oh, don't go to Perfect Game National, you should come to our event, which may be a marketing move that MLB makes. I think then you'll sort of see what the target is and then what the target actually ends up being um, or what the outcome ends up being after they sort of declare what they're trying to do. But I think they're eventually going to try to have, you know, three of the four big events over the summer and fall be run by MLB, which is a, I think, an admirable um, goal. It is to be seen how it will actually play out. I guess the two weird things that uh, first come to mind that might stem from this are MLB is they have to be in bed with perfect game a little bit already, right? Because the PG all American game is on MLB network every August. So there's one thing that there's, there's sort of a, I guess like a conflict of interest there. I believe the Under Armour game is the one on MLB Network. Is the PG one on there too? I know it used to be on Fox. I don't know if it still is. I thought it was on MLB Network. I mean, I'm there, so I don't, no, you know what I mean? Like it's been a while since I've watched that on Yeah, TV. they have to coexist at some level. Like I think on some of the draft broadcasts they actually use the PG picture of the headshot of the player if they don't have one. Right. Uh so there's that. And then the other is data collection. Um the the PDP program has been going on for the last couple of years. Like if you go to MLB Pipeline's prospect page, that's all the pictures, uh, yeah. Which is very alliter- alliterative. Then you can find like there's a PDP section that has like 
several years it has underclassmen uh, listed on there. And at those PDP events, they're doing all sorts of different kinds of tests. They're not The kids aren't just running 60s and taking BP and then doing infield and outfield. Like There's all sorts of data being collected. Um, they're they're doing tests uh, with, like with reaction time, and they're running all sorts of like NFL combine style drills. Uh, and I think that there is some concern about uh, a lot of uh, like data being collected that uh, could change the way play. Like it's almost like an invasion of privacy sort of thing uh, that it changes the way people view the event a little bit. It's another uh, one of those things that the CBA needs to settle it, but obviously these amateur right. players aren't being represented They're not fully. represented. I mean, right. they're being represented by the Players Association, but they're not part of the union, so they can't technically coordinate, and so they're not really represented very well. They're seen as like a bargaining chip for big league players. Um, right. I would also say that the PDP has been uh, going out of their way to get better players to come by, um, like I went to the uh, East Coast Pro workout in Florida. So East Coast Pro is the event that scouts run for the East Coast. They split the East Coast into six teams. And so each of the six sort of regions have workouts to see which players will make the team. And this year in Dunedin, the Florida workout that I went to was a PDP event that doubled as the East Coast Pro workout so that they didn't have to have two separate events and maybe water down the talent at both of them. And I believe that happened for some of the area code workouts also. So they're already trying to figure out ways to expand the pool of players they can get data on. And I know they also do events generally in like January, February before the season starts so that in sort of a dead time when scouts aren't really seeing the players... Uh, that there's a time to you know sort of scout them and then also collect data and you're not competing with other events. So they're they're being smart about uh, getting as much data as they can. But I know from being on the team side, and talking to people that are currently on the team side, a lot of the stuff they're measuring with like force plates and stuff. Um, a lot of teams don't know what to do with that. They don't know if it's predictive because they've just been getting the data recently. They may not be use, like measuring things the same way that other teams that know how to use this data would measure it. So it's still unclear how this is getting used. I think once it becomes like, oh, this guy put up X, Y, or Z number on a force plate at this event in January, and that'll dictate where he goes in the draft, I think then the um, the agents and the players, amateur players, um, sorry, advisors, um, their interest in how this data is being used will be a lot bigger if suddenly a number that gets generated at one of these events uh, becomes like defining of you know what uh, how good their player is and where they go and how much money they can get. Whereas right now, I don't think that's the case. Or if it is, it's in a very small stage. Right. I mean, this isn't an overarching thought, but like, yeah, the force plates thing is interesting because um, there has been there have been studies done on ground force plates and. and uh, ground forces generated by pitchers and which leg uh, generates ground forces and, and which is more meaningful and correlated stronger with velocity. Um, There's one thing I read also that, just that, that velocity. Yeah, that correlated it to Tommy John surgeries or injuries in general, which also could be correlated to you know a collinearity thing with with velocity in general. That it's right. actually it would it wouldn't surprise me if if there were some if there were a gap between expected velocity. Uh, and based on your your ground forces and your actual velocity, like if you throw harder than the ground forces indicate you should be throwing, if that makes sense, then maybe you're at greater risk for injury. Like that's just sort of a that's like a hypothesis I'd have if you ask me to you know look at these this ground force data and look at uh, these velocities. Like that's something I'd guess, and you, I could presumably check that, but I don't know. But yeah, like the, all sorts of stuff like that. Teams could run wild with it, but they've only been doing this for a couple of years, and so. You can't you – know, until you have a big league sample from some of these guys, you probably can't start drawing conclusions about the data. 
Yeah, and on I think on a larger scale, you can see why you are seeing more teams have their analytics group in the draft room be a bigger part of what's going on and and be hiring more scouts, scouting directors that are analytically inclined or at least uh, interested in sort of integrating all these different pieces of information. Because if somehow somebody was curious enough and found out that, um, you know, how such and such a high school pitcher uh, performed on a force plate and that we now know it is a elevated chance of him both throwing harder and getting Tommy John – like all of a sudden the scouting report becomes less important when that will define how good the player is in a lot of ways or what his value will be in the short term, which the GM cares about. Um, and that isn't something that a scout is really equipped to talk about. Like that's not, that's not information or inputs or even outcomes or odds or anything that they're like, um, if they don't have the information, don't have the experience with it, like they're not going to be good at that. And that becomes a bigger part of the pie. So you can kind of see why certain teams are moving in that direction which will also transition into our second mini topic, which is uh, what's going on with Houston and Baltimore and in general, like the, I guess the bigger picture of what's going on personnel wise in those front offices and scouting staffs. So uh, I guess since I've been talking uh, a little bit now, um, how would you sort of set the table on the, on the larger um, scale as to what's going on with these two teams? Right. So Houston has had a lot of, front office departures over the last couple of weeks. And I think the big implication here is clearly Houston knows a lot of stuff uh, and that they are on the cutting edge of a lot of understanding about how pitching and hitting really work and not only what works, but how to implement it uh, into their players. And now that knowledge is going to start to permeate through the rest of baseball. And so the question is um, how quickly then how quickly how quickly can the two of us <laughs> learn all that stuff um, based on this? And then what? Where does that leave Houston once everybody else catches up? Especially because um, given how quickly they've had turnover there, all of a sudden, is that a place that people want to go and work? Not, and like these questions aren't really answerable. But this is sort of the thing that we're, we'll be – I don't know. Do you have uh, any thoughts on that stuff specifically before uh, we talk about Baltimore? Yeah, I guess so. So Houston has lost uh, what I guess some people from the outside would describe as their top two analytical minds in um, Sig and Mike Fast. And Sig went to Baltimore. And then, ironically, the uh, one of the analytic, head analytics person, I believe, from Baltimore, Sarah Gallus, went to Houston. Um, and then Mike Fast went to Atlanta where he'll work with uh, Jason Perre sort of heading up the R&D department for the Braves which is quickly expanding. Um, and then also Mike Elias, who had sort of become the, um, I guess, scouting guru for the Astros, where as far as I know, he was in charge of international pro and amateur scouting. Yeah, everything. Yeah, so you lose those three guys, and there were some other people as well at like a lower level that aren't necessarily like, you know, names we need to be throwing out there, but I think people in the game are aware of who they are and that other people were sort of squeezed out of there in one way or another. Um they would need to obviously like the most progressive teams that I talk to, I think we would agree are in sort of the top five of like, you know, sort of knowing, having the most um, internal knowledge about these things. They insist that Houston is ahead of everybody on almost everything. Um, and so suddenly, and most of these top five teams don't have people with knowledge of everything that's going on in analytics, walking out the door in one way or another. Um, and so obviously you could argue the two top analytics people just walked out the door in Houston. So that's a lot, like you were saying, a lot of stuff, uh, to use the phrase again, walking out the door. So at the very least, you just go hire other people and then tell them, here's what we were doing, pick up where they left off, which uh, as far as we know, they've lost two people and hired one. Presumably they will hire some other people um, to do that. The other thing would be with Mike Elias leaving is they have to pick someone to run amateur pro and international departments. And they have some people internally 
that they yeah. could just sort of promote and then backfill with some new hires at a lower level to do that. But you could also argue that the pool of people that fit the uh, description of Mike, even if you just need three separate ones that are slightly less qualified than he was, to both um, have enough scouting and baseball knowledge to sort of run those departments in a traditional sense of just sort of having the know-how, but then also um, being experienced enough to also be high-ranking and possibly make some of the tough decisions there, and then also want to play nice with Jeff Lunau, who has, I think it's safe to say, a terrible reputation in scouting circles. <laughs> um, yeah, like, yeah, it, scouts, across baseball don't like, <laughs> scouts across baseball don't like the organization that's firing all their scouts. Like, that's not shocking to anybody. But so, yeah, part of the reason... Yeah. Part of the reason that they that this they might be able to recover from this brain drain pretty quickly is because uh, and part of why they uh, fired all the scouts they did is now all the Houston scouting stuff is under one roof. There's not three very separate departments like a lot of other teams have international, amateur, and pro. So yeah, it will take the right candidate or two to come in and be able to juggle all that stuff at one time, but it's presumably easier than replacing, uh, you know, if all of your directors walked out the door, which is essentially what happened with Elias. You know, but if it were actually three positions, it would be much harder to replace than if it's just one or, you know, and one some, and an assistant or something. And some speculation is that because they're in that unique stance where they, they probably can't find someone like Mike to go be in charge of all three of those departments, play nice with Lunau, and also have the... Um, you know, experience and know-how to maybe be the person making the final calls in a lot of situations, that that'll get spread across a lot of people and they could go even further in the progressive direction and have like very non-traditional, have never been a scout before, which I don't think any team has right now, um, type people running scouting departments and kind of lean even more into the sort of analysts are the ones making decisions here as opposed to scouts, which, you know, obviously they're on the very end of the progressive um, spectrum, they could go even further and just sort of skip to the end and just have analysts being in charge of the scouts directly on a day-to-day basis. Rather, There than... aren't scouts anymore. Well, <laughs> you could say that too. So that, that's that's one thought, is that they'll replace Mike with three or four people and that they might not even be scouts from inside, or considered, quote, scouts from inside that are promoted, that those people stay where they are and they just sort of, you know, maybe just flatten out the whole distribution of front office talent. So the, it'll be interesting to see what sort of people that they put in those spots, even just with the titles. Uh, but at the very least, uh, I mean, they had two assistant GMs, one more of a administration person, and then Mike was more of the scouting person. So at the very least, they need a right-hand person that represents all the scouting stuff, even if they're not technically in charge of all of it. And that is not something that I think, um, you know, uh, very high-end successful organizations with a lot of big league talent uh, look forward to doing, especially with a guy like Mike that was in charge of all three, which most teams don't have that sort of setup, or at least have a bunch of people around them that can fill in if that person leaves. Uh, moving on to Baltimore, um, yeah. so they have a, a unique situation in that they are, we'll say perceived, I don't want to say like what it actually is, they're perceived to be behind in analytics in part because they are very low on headcount, and it was reported uh, at one point that uh, Duquette was asking the Angelos family for more headcount. I believe he said that they were approved for more headcount. I haven't heard if any of that's happened. I would imagine nobody or not very many people were hired just because the new GM would probably want to be in charge of that. I would imagine right. that Michael Elias will be getting that headcount to then fill out a analytics department where I guess they lost their head person but then replaced uh, Sarah with SIG. So um, that would seem to be a fine exchange for the Orioles, but they would presumably need a lot of people beneath that. And I know their scouting departments uh, have thinned out considerably 
as some people I believe were let go and some proactively left while the GM position was in question. And it was already thin. Yeah, and it was already kind of thin to begin with. So, And you could also argue uh, that there are some parallels between Michael Elias coming into this position in Baltimore with what Jeff Lunau walked into in Houston, that they're both seen as not a spe- like not top half farm system, probably bottom half farm system, which I guess we have Baltimore, I want to say 28th or something close to that in our farm rankings. And that's after making all these trades at the deadline. So they were, you know, even closer to the bottom before that. And then having essentially no assets, maybe negative assets on the big league side and that there might be a couple sort of Michael Givens types that you could trade and get a prospect or two or Dylan Bundy. But then you've got, you know, the contract of Alex Cobb, which is, you know, market rate at best. And then obviously I had tweeted this week that uh, you could argue that Chris Davis's contract is $90 million uh, in or, or $92 million in the red when their whole farm system we had approximated at $77 million. Um, so you could argue there is, you know, close to zero as far as player personnel if you just add it all together. And Houston was something like that uh, when Lunau came in. So with, I guess th- this would be, with, with Sig and Elias coming into that situation who were both there at the beginning in Houston, um, I guess the question to you, Eric, would be, do you think that there might go a, at least the first couple of years, and we're not going to project a World Series in like year four, do you think there may be a similar trajectory and sort of uh, path and style for what's going to happen in Baltimore to what Lunau and these guys did in Houston? I think stylistically, yes, that there will absolutely be parallels. I don't know about the path and the trajectory of the org, right? Because when the current regime went to Houston, George Springer and Jose Altuve and some of the other pieces were already in the org. Um, and so, you know, like from a talent perspective, uh, I don't know that those guys exist in the Baltimore farm system right now. There are guys I like, and I do think that when we reevaluate Baltimore this offseason, that they will be uh, look better than 28th in the farm system rankings. Like D.L. Hall is really talented, um, and Houston you know, Diaz is is probably a good everyday big leaguer and that yeah. sort of stuff. Yeah, it sounds like they have think, a couple 45s turned into 50s. Right. So, uh, but I think that the real question is how how – long does it take to build uh, an infrastructure uh, like a scouting and data infrastructure from scratch and how much are you able to take with you like you can, like because they're kind of just starting from nothing it's going to take several years just to catch up on that end uh, let alone start to see like actual yield in your farm system on the big league club yeah, I've, I've had a little experience with this. Um, generally, if you are making a brand new system to house all of your data and scouting reports and medical and all of that stuff from scratch, uh, at the point where you have all of the essential stuff that you need, not everything you want, but everything that's essential, it takes probably three years and probably all in, including hires, uh, maybe $2 million. And I don't know where, I mean, I knew where Baltimore was when I worked there, which was a long, uh, what, seven or eight years ago. Yeah. I don't know where they are now, uh, but even if they've obviously made a lot of progress since then, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming, it may be where they want to start a whole system from scratch to uh, mirror ground control, which is uh, the name of Houston's system. I would imagine that's going to be what's going to happen, and that would be, I think, a lot of what SIG is there to do, because I believe he was the right. one that sort of did that in Houston in the first place. And so, yeah, that's that's one of those things where I believe the sort of meeting with ownership will be, we need five years to have all the stuff we want, three years to like have it sort of up and running and humming and working and all the stuff that we sort of need to be on there, and it's going to be seven figures to make that happen. And, I mean, I know at least a dozen teams that have done that exact thing. It's just most of them did it anywhere from three to ten years ago. So assuming that 
Baltimore, if we assume that Baltimore will eventually want to do what Houston is doing right now, which is to run a, an operation that is pretty lean on eyeball scouts and leans hard into data and analytics and uh, track man and other uh, measurables, how do they – what do they do in the meantime as far as town evaluation goes? Are they just going to – like is every scout that Baltimore has and hires over the next half decade, uh, are they eventually a, a lame duck or are there ways that those guys can uh, enter this organization with assurance that at some point, even though the, the Orioles will have these capabilities that Houston has right now, that they won't all suddenly be mowed down like Houston's staff has been the last two years? Yeah, I guess it's – it's hard to know what Elias or Elias and Sig's stance will be on like the the number of scouts and how much you want to listen to them and how much you want to pay them and how you want to treat them in general will be versus what Lunaz was because it's not like if Lunaz decided this is how I want to handle those issues in Houston that if these guys said no you, you don't want to do this that I think from what we know of Luna probably just would have done what he wanted to do and say hey when you know like your parents say to you hey when you have a driver's license and you're driving the car you can control the radio like this is their chance to control the radio and so will that be exact will they want to do exactly what Luna did or would they want to do 10% different or you know 50 100% different like we don't know um I yeah I I, I don't have a sense for that I, I think uh, one of the things you alluded to was how will they evaluate players now, knowing the way that they evaluated them with Houston and not having all of those tools, or so we'll assume, in Baltimore? And I think you then go back to uh, principles. Like, I would imagine that they will probably lean toward, you know, four-seam high-spend guys with high-spend breaking balls and things like that. Sure. And they have, like, the raw, you know, even minor league um, track man data. So they have enough there to be able to pick guys out. I would imagine they're... I would guess that their confidence in sorting through three similar players uh, that are not exactly their type as the third person in a deal, I would imagine they'll be a little less confident than they would be if they were in Houston or three years from now when they'll have all their sort of data and processes and everything set up. But that's just one of those things that if you if you walk into a team without all the data you want and you have to go make five trades because that's the best for the organization, you just realize the fourth or fifth guy in the trade, you know, maybe you didn't have enough scouts, you're going to hire some, but you don't have the data you want right now, but you have to trade this guy right now. Um, that's one of those things that happens. And I know I had, um, I had commented to some Braves people that, um, the new regime that came in last year was lucky that they walked into a situation where they didn't necessarily have the processes and people and data and things that they wanted to make these big decisions. Like, do we trade these three top 100 prospects for, you know, Sonny Gray, Chris Sale, whoever it is that it, it turned out that their timetable and sort of what the talent suggested was that they should probably wait a year until about now to do that. And they're going to have a year to evaluate the players. So luckily they didn't walk into a spot where they had to make a bunch right. of trades. And they got to wait as long as presumably they would have wanted to wait. And I think in Baltimore, I went through the list with uh, some friends saying like, oh, who are their big assets? Like, who are they going to want to trade in the short term? And we're like, all right, Chris Davis, like that's that's a non-starter. Nobody's going to want that contract. You'd have to pay down so much. You'd, you'd probably just be better off releasing and hoping. Right, he something. has to play better next year before he's even... And- and then you have Alex Cobb, who's on essentially a market rate, maybe a little above market rate deal that maybe you can, you know, eat a little money and trade them, but that wouldn't be for huge prospects. And then the assets would be like that aren't prospects. You have Chance Cisco recently graduated. Uh, you have yeah. Tanner Scott recently graduated. You have Michael Givens, mm-hmm. who's a little probably their best asset by a good margin. And they just have a bunch of like guys that were, I guess, non-50 prospects like Trey Mancini, Cedric Mullins, uh, Jonathan Villar, DJ Stewart 
who aren't on prospect lists anymore, but they're just like, yeah, these these guys could be 50s or 55s, or maybe one of them could turn into a 6 for a little while, but these are probably just sort of like, you know, cost-controlled guys that you can stick in there that won't embarrass you. They're not really assets per se, and they're not the kind of guys you want to be trading. So at some point, it's like, you know, Givens and Bundy um, and maybe, you know, Alex Cobb, like, you might just trade those three guys, not get a whole lot, and then just sign a couple, you know, one-year, $7 million middle relievers. One of them goes well, and then you can trade them at the deadline. Like, I, I think that's going to be the moves. Like, I don't think they're backed into a corner where they have to feel like they're flying blind into a bunch of trades because I don't think there's a bunch of trades to be made. I think Duquette made, made the ones that were, that were there. Yeah, I agree with you. I think where we'll have to watch is on the amateur talent acquisition side. Um, you know, they're... Elias is walking into an organization with, I don't know, like probably close to $4 million or so uh, international dollars to spend before June uh, and like nowhere to stick it. So like you could try to find something to do with that money. And I do think that uh, technology and its application in, uh, in talent identification is different now than it was when Houston was doing their rebuild. Uh, so what they do in Baltimore is is obviously they're at like different ends of the competitive spectrum. So uh, what they might do in Baltimore might look very different than what Houston did while they were rebuilding. I suppose there are probably a few contending teams who they could identify uh, as fits for some of these guys that they might be able to trade uh, and find a handful of guys that that they like that makes sense um, just to bolster the the farm system in the short term. But yeah, in general, I agree with you. Uh, I expect that some of the guys you mentioned, like Cedric Mullins, might be a solid everyday big leaguer, but is he realistically going to be on the next competitive Orioles team, even though he's got another five, six years of team control left? Like, I just don't know. So it'll be interesting to see how those these near-ready big leaguers uh, develop and if they stick around for a while. Like, presumably, a couple of these guys could be candidates for early extension, right? Like, Mountcastle's almost ready. Uh, I mentioned Diaz. He's almost ready. Austin Hayes and Ryan McKenna are probably something, and they're both almost ready. So there is some near-ready talent, and this big league team is going to be interesting to watch. Um, yeah, they could, they could have too. a bunch of cost-controlled fives, but given right. like the attrition rates, it's probably going to be three or four of them and then some disappointing guys in a few other spots. That's all what Toronto is right now, though, right? It's like they have all these cost-controlled 45s and 50s and a superstar or two on the way. And in a couple of years, Baltimore might, too. Like, Adley Rutschman might be incredible, you know? He's so is an early heavy favorite to go 1-1, so that's the, one of the things you'd like to see when you're in the beginning of a rebuild is, oh, we're going to get the number one pick. I hope this isn't a crappy year for the draft without a clear top guy, and right now it looks like uh, it's coming up what Elias would want to see, essentially. Yeah, it'll it's going to be fascinating to see how this, this team goes about it, especially th- this division. Is this the smartest division in uh, Major League Baseball now? Yeah, I would say, well, I'm not sure if it's the smartest, but it'd definitely be the hardest to do this sort of thing. Oh, like, yeah. Like, they can make some real progress in the rebuild and still be in fifth place. Yep. Wes Johnson, the former Arkansas pitching coach, was hired to go right to the major leagues and be the the Twins' um, pitching coach. So uh, it's pretty easy. Like, this is easy online research to do if you dig. This is like a progressive, driveline-style college pitching coach. And we see this across all sports, right, where innovation comes to college first. Uh, There's just... There's just so many jobs that some people are going to be willing to stick their necks out and innovate, and there's just better job security in college anyway. 
Especially in the uh, SEC, there's more money, too. That was one of the things right. we'd seen. Uh, I think Kyle Bodie was tweeting about, among other people, that uh, SEC pitching coaches make more than many big league pitching coaches. Right. So, obviously, the implementation of some of these new philosophies as far as how to pitch and how to develop pitching is going to come to Minnesota. Um, and I think that that's good. I th- the first thing that struck me when I heard this is uh, Arkansas had a pitching coach that a big league team wanted right now, and Arizona State didn't even have a pitching coach for a full season two years ago. Um, Imagine so that being was, a recruit that, with those two options. <laughs> that was my first thought. Uh, so, yeah, uh, it kind of underscores the disparity – uh, at some of these college programs too, but yeah, um, I think it's going to be very. You could see a lot of people. There, there are junior college pitching coaches who have adopted these philosophies, who are who have like their job prospects are on the rise now. You know what I mean? You could so, go from making like twenty thousand dollars to like one hundred and fifty in one season. Yeah, uh, so it's going to be fascinating to see how quickly this this starts to. Uh, filter through the rest of baseball. I think it's going to come pretty quickly. Uh, Garvin Alston, who the Twins let go of, had been their pitching coach for one year. Uh, he's a he's a good pitching coach. So uh, I I don't know. Uh, do you have anything that you thought about this? Like it's just it just seems like this has been coming for a while. Yeah. And now it's it's just here. And this was pretty aggressive, but I don't think it's. I don't anticipate Minnesota will fail. Like I don't see how this leap will be too much like I, for a single person to do. Like it doesn't seem crazy to me. Yeah, my uh my two thoughts would be one um this may turn into especially if Derek Johnson and Wes Johnson, I, I believe not not related, um end up being good big league pitching coaches for sort of multiple years that this could become a pipeline that um, teams go to, I believe the backfill, this has been rumored for a long time in scouting circles, especially now that, um, scouting seems to be contracting a bit, um, is college coaching staffs, especially if they approve the fourth assistant will hire scouts that, you know, maybe feel a little underappreciated or overworked or underpaid to come in and essentially double or triple their salary to be the head of recruiting. And then also sort of pitch in as a coach which has not really happened. Vanderbilt did it a little bit. Florida did it back in the day. It hasn't happened a lot. I imagine there will be a lot more of that, especially if the yeah. if these high-end coaches that are difference makers are getting plucked by big league teams. You could then say that the coaches and scouts employed by big league teams are the ones that are being underpaid and under-motivated to work in, in a way, and that the college money will then swoop in and respond in kind. And I would, um, I think that may happen. The other thing I would say is... I think what Minnesota has done over the last few years with obviously Derek Falvey coming in as the president from Cleveland and then Dad Levine coming from Texas is what a lot of progressive teams are doing and it may be what Baltimore ends up doing, which is you come in, you generally keep most of the people, you give them a year to prove themselves to you that they fit with your vision or that they're with the program or whatever. And then if they prove that they don't, uh, then you go find new people, but you don't come in and do essentially what Jeff Lunau did and go fire everybody before they even have a chance to really do anything because you're pretty sure none of these guys are going to fit, which is probably the case. But you could have handled it a different way, which I think is part of the reason why Lunau's PR is so bad in the scouting uh, community, that now they have Rocco Baldelli, who is a former player that is, uh, I would say, probably is on the progressive side, but obviously is a former player and, and has some cachet in that area and used to coach for the Rays, who obviously are a progressive team. And then you have a, as we would probably guess, a successful and progressive and high-level pitching coach, 
and uh, they seem to be getting into you know, all of the contracts that they inherited and, you know, just the various things they had to deal with are now sort of slowly uh, sloughing off. They're drafting players that are, you know, drafted in their way. Like, this is sort of like a college football coach taking over in two years into his regime. He's got all the coaches he wants. He's gotten rid of all the coaches he doesn't want. All the bad players have been kicked off the team. Uh, half of the team is now people that he recruited. Like, everything's starting to come into focus. And I think that's how a lot of these, especially progressive uh, regimes in the front office, are handling things. And I think now we're seeing Minnesota is sort of past the halfway point where I'd say over the half of the people and players in the organization are ones that they actively have wanted. And so we'll get to sort of see what sort of results they can get with, uh, with, with the people that they've chosen. I think some of this fans the flames of discourse regarding how cheap ownership is because it's everything is skewing young and uh open-minded and people with tenure are just by and large more expensive um and so that stuff's not great but i do think that the like i do trust teams intent on this sort of thing like i don't think that west johnson was uh, hired because uh he's cheaper than a pitching coach with uh, like you know uh 20 years of experience. Um, that may not be I think, the case, actually. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it's... I don't, it might not be the case. It's true. Um, so, yeah, I just think that this was a foregone conclusion. This stuff was going to start happening across Major League Baseball at some point. I just think that it's accelerating. I think, like, this is the time when we're going to start to really see it start to happen. And, um, you know, like, Gabe Kapler's hire was, was just like this. And uh, I think Chris Woodward's hire in Texas... Uh, ideally, the Rangers would like it to be like this, and I just think it's stuff like this is going to start happening across baseball. Like you, could, Dave Cameron's hire uh, with the Padres to work with Andy Green was probably is just another version of this, right? It's how can we take some of these concepts and get them on the field, as opposed to just in the uh, the way we, that we evaluate players in the front office. Yeah, I had I had joked. I think with you, probably multiple people, that it seems like teams are outsourcing the translator job of translating scouting uh, information to stats people and stats information to scouting people because the people in the media uh, seem to have more experience doing that, whereas the you know 25-year-old in the front office is probably doing one or the other, has a limited set of skills, limited set of um, influences and connections, whereas the people in the media... Uh, the internet in general are seeing more games. Everything they're seeing is public. You can pick out over you know multiple years of tweets and articles which people seem to fit what you're trying to do. And we've seen many people, like I guess myself, uh, Carson Sestoli, Dave Cameron, uh, people from other publications, get hired in these roles. And it's almost it, it, it seems to be fewer and fewer of them are internal promotions to those jobs. It seems like it's um, people that have sort of demonstrated in the public sphere that they can they can do this level of translating. So Yeah, I, I think the skill set needed to uh, work in pro baseball is definitely changing, um, and it's changing very quickly and uh, probably faster than a lot of people who are already working in baseball can adapt to what teams want them to do, and the teams aren't necessarily giving a lot of them a chance to adapt. Uh, so closed-mindedness is probably... Uh, not a great trait to have if you're working in baseball right now. Uh, there should be some level of receptiveness to uh, this new thinking. I don't think you have to buy in. It's not like a. It's not a cult. But um, yeah, I think the team you're talking about. <laughs> curiosity is a is a valued thing now. I think with with major league baseball teams. Yeah, and I've heard from some people that think that their new progressive GMs are 
passing judgment on them before they get a chance just because of, you know, the kind of person they are or how old they are or things like that. Um, right. And so I would say that obviously, you know, be, being open-minded, wanting to learn some of the new skills, like I, I would say some of the um, some of the people who would have the best reason to be closed-minded because they were so successful and so good at traditional methods have been some of the most open to new methods that I've found, even in their 70s and 80s. So it's not like old is synonymous with, you know, useless and closed off to change and all these sorts of things. It, it just sort of goes person to person. Um, but, yeah, of course, in general, younger people will tend to have more of the skills that these um, that these more progressive regimes are looking for. Younger people have, you know, are easier to learn things in general, and will more likely to be coders and good with computers, and those are the things they're looking for. Um, so that's, you know, typically where it's right. going to go. And when did you read Moneyball? Like I was a sophomore I read it in as high a school, senior in high school. Yeah, there you go. So, uh, you know, already that's just sort of when you're 15 and you're thinking about baseball is it doesn't have to be changed. You know, it's just yeah. you're set up for this. The whole the your your foundation of knowledge is. Uh, that you should be questioning it all the time, like you already have a leg up on everyone who's been in the game for thirty years and has a hardline stance on how to go about everything. Yep. Well, that will be it for our uh, tri- triple. Uh, what would that be? This would be a triple topic as our third topic. Lightning round. Neapolitan. It's a Neapolitan topic. Yeah. Which one was chocolate? Uh, I don't know. Which yeah. one did you like least? Let's start there. That's the <laughs> strawberry one, right? I don't want to tell the listener which one to skip. There you go. Uh, so we should address the elephant in the room. Uh, okay, yeah. Car- Carson Sestouli, um, often, yeah, often described as an elephant in the room. Um, he is he's leaving Fangraphs. Uh, we'll refer to him as dearly departed along with other uh, departed Fangraphs employees. Uh, but Eric, I, I, my, my approach with Carson, I think both while he was working here and in his, and, um, my farewell to him on Twitter was to make a joke. So this feels like more a moment for you to say something hard. <laughs> uh, okay. I mean, it is kind of a funny story, right? Because I was at a, a college scrimmage when I got a text from you that said, Hey, I, I hear the blue Jays are talking to, a writer about a pro scouting job. Do you know who it is? And then I spent you and I both spent like the next probably two or three days, certainly while I was at the ballpark that day, just trying to figure out who it could be. Like it was, it we had no way. Like we kept coming up short, and we were sourcing it like we had a lead on who a GM was going to be, and it was going to be announced in five yeah, minutes. Like, so we were just like, oh, we yeah. got to find out who this is. <laughs> um, and it was Carson, and so yes, um. When he called to to tell me, like officially, that this was happening, um, I was shocked. Not because I think Carson is dumb, but because I had never imagined a Fangraphs without Carson. And um, I've been doing this job now for like two years and some change. And uh, this is the end of Saturday. Will mark the end of my tenth year in baseball. Um, and there's no amount of preparation that can adequately prepare you for any, probably any full-time uh, baseball writing gig. Like it does sort of uh, take you by surprise when you get thrust into it. Um, and I was really lucky to have Carson be my editor during that time. Um, he's a really wonderful person and, uh, for like a number of reasons, 
not and he's like super hilarious in a way that is totally unlike anybody else I've ever known. Um, and being around him at like our our uh, Fangraphs meetups at at various cities has been so much fun. Um, and so I was really sad when uh, when he told me that he was going to go. But this opportunity is so incredible for him and for the Blue Jays. Uh, and I just wish him well. Um, it's, it's different when, uh, your friends go and do this stuff does change your relationship with them because next time Carson and I talk, uh, there's going to be stuff that Carson knows that like, he can't tell me, um, and it, so b- both of us will be slightly guarded in a way that we didn't have to be before, and it sucks. Um, but it's just part of the price we pay when we become part of this game. Um, and I think that it's true for a lot of different industries. I'm sure it's not just specific to baseball uh and it's not a thing I ever anticipated would happen when I got into uh, baseball. And it is one of those things that sort of changes the way you feel about it uh, as a whole. But, um, you know, my selfishness aside, I'm so happy for Carson and his family. Uh, some of the details of his job, I, I still don't even know, again, like, because I can't. Um, but it sounds like he couldn't have passed it up. And so I would not have wanted him to, uh, we'll miss him and his work at the site. And, uh, I'll miss just being able to like shoot the shit with him for two hours on a random Wednesday because nothing's happening. Um, cause he will never have that moment again. He's got a one year old in a job in a baseball front office. So, uh, he will not have a free moment <laughs> for a long time. Uh, but we love you, Carson. If you're listening to this, uh, which I hope you're not. Um, and uh, I feel bad for Fangraphs readers and podcast listeners, And uh, but I feel super great for Carson. So congrats to him uh, and to Meg, who we have on uh, this episode to talk about some stuff. Well, this has been another episode of Ump, the entitled McDong and Hagen Project. Uh, thank, thank you for listening. Uh, the episodes have been long, although I, I did get a message from someone that thanked me for the long episode because they had a long drive. So that's why we put in all the timestamps and all the topics so that if you want to skip something and make it into a 40 minute podcast, like, you know, be our guest. We just need to download. We're just trying to try to make all that sweet internet money. Uh, but thanks for listening. Eric, you got anything else to add? Uh, no, happy Thanksgiving, everyone. I don't know if we're going to do a a pod next week. Uh, I guess this will probably run during Thanksgiving week. So um, enjoy the holiday and your meals and adult beverages and look forward to seeing you guys in December. This might be the last podcast of my 20s, so we could talk about uh, my march toward death next episode if you want. Yeah, I mean, if we're going to be dour about stuff, we should bring Meg back on. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Meg, uh, we brought you on for a topic. Uh, we're going to surprise you. It's about death and it's oncoming March. What do you got? 45 uh, minutes later. Yeah, what a, what a welcome to the managing editor role. Uh, well, th- yeah, thanks to Craig. I'm excited. Thanks to Meg. Uh, they're not related, even though their names rhyme. Although I don't think that's how relations work. Uh, and we'll see you next week.
Uh, <laughs> you know? 